So I figured out that um, if you camp the way we camp, then it's actually a vacation to come home. Uh, because we take so much stuff along with us. My theory is, um, let's see how little we can take. And if we needed it and we wish we'd had it, that's a fun challenge and an adventure. My ideal camping trip would be like, everyone gets one small backpack. And that includes their bedding. You know, and, and you sleep in like hammocks, put a tarp over a hammock, you cook over a fire, and you know, and in an ideal world, you kill your food and you clean your food and you eat your food. But that's not how we did it. We took a cart in the back of the van and had a thing on the top, a topper and a cart, and filled all that. And when we got there, the bridge was out. And so we had to carry all the stuff from the back of that cart and the back of the van and the topper across a hanging suspension bridge that was teetering left and right. So you can go, feel free to laugh at this next part. So I'm trying to carry a mini fridge across this hanging suspension bridge and I'm pumping it, waving back and forth and up and down. And I'm like, this is not camping. In what world is carrying a mini fridge across a hanging suspension bridge normal. But by the time you get home from all that nonsense, it's like, man, I need a vacation from all that. I'm sore. Uh, I wanted to do some big picture update stuff. We'll get back to Colossians here. Next week, I want to talk about elders and deacons and kind of lay a theology for why elders matter and why deacons matter and why did the first century church arrange the local congregation the way they did for the advance of the gospel for maximum uh, focus, each part of the body, maximum focus on the forward spread of the gospel. If you really want to arrange your life to, to focus on Jesus, if you really want to focus on Jesus, you're going to have to arrange your life. You figured that out yet? That if you don't take time to first arrange your life, then you'll live in your life a disorganized way. So you have to spend some time not just working in your life, but actually working on your life so that when you work, it's effective. Just anyone else track with what I'm saying? And so the early church had to figure out how to work on the church a little bit so that they could do the work of the church better. And they came to a time in Acts chapter 6. And so I want to talk about that next week. And then after that, I'll be back to my Colossians series. This Wednesday... Uh, We're going to be talking about prayer, how prayer is the greater work. Sometimes we think of ourselves as the work is is the physical action in the world, and then we pray God will bless the work. Well, actually, if you track through your New Testament, you'll see that's not the case. In the New Testament, if you track through very carefully, you'll see that the prayer is the main work, and the walking it out is the secondary part. Prayer is the greater work because God is the one who works. Remember the psalm that says, unless the Lord builds the house, its workers labor in vain. In vain you get up early. In vain you stay up late. In vain you worry over the details. In vain you plot and plan and scheme and then sweat. But if the Lord is in it, if you're you're in step with the Lord, then, then even if you misstep, he puts grace on it and makes it effective and makes it work. Anybody hearing what I'm saying? And so prayer then becomes the greater work, not the secondary work. It's the primary task of the Christian, not the secondary task. It's the oxygen of, of the Christian life. If, you, if I said, you get three days to not eat, you'd say, I can handle that. If I said, you get three days to not breathe, you'd say, no, wait, hold on. And prayer is breathing for the Christian life. It's the greater work.
So we're going to talk about that on Wednesday at the whiteboard. This morning, I just kind of want to do a little bit of a state of the union, and I'll try to not make it too dry and boring. I'll try. So Holy Spirit, give us help, give us grace, that this not just be uh, information, but this actually have application for every heart. Some practical announcements. The youth update, uh, Kate and Pete and Andrew are, being, are going through a, a formal process right now. They've all filled out theological questionnaires and personal questionnaires, evaluating the doctrine of the denomination we're in, which I actually love our doctrine. I love what we believe in this denomination. I'm really grateful for that. It's fun. It's been fun kind of interacting with them on that level. And uh, soon we'll be putting their names before you for voting to affirm them in their, in their roles in youth leadership. Also, we're restructuring how we are operating here. We used, to, we, we used to have a council over here and an elder team over here. And we think that it would be more effective, and you saw the recommendations conference gave, to draw those teams closer together. And again, like I just mentioned, we think a good way to do that is to go back to our Bibles and they had elders and deacons. And the deacons were uh, helping, serving alongside, or actually more like under the, the elders. And we feel like you can't go wrong doing what the Bible says when it speaks to an issue already. Trying to be smarter than the Bible is, ends up being dumb. And that's something that I've learned by being dumb. Uh, the other pieces are... We're going to have a new slate of nominations for, uh, soon for approval because we have some vacant positions like trustee and so forth um, with some people who've recently left. So soon we will present a list of names for affirmation. Uh, and last week we took up the vote on the recommendations of the overseers, which did not pass. Um, but I think uh, that what we will end up doing will I'll say it this way, will please the overseers. I really do. I think they'll be happy with what we do instead because it will still fulfill the spirit of what they were proposing, but some of the particulars might be slightly nuanced. They called us to, number one, repent, uh, restructure the leadership team, just like I mentioned here. They called for me to receive intensive mentoring, uh, which I actually have already begun. I have leadership coaching with Adam Bauer, and I'm seeking a kind of mentoring relationship with Mark Yoder, which is really what they wanted me to do. And they wanted to provide some more intensive oversight. Um, and it's, it's at that point that the intensive oversight it seems a little excessive to have Joe zooming into our elder meetings where it's four people talking about how did Sunday go and how are small groups going. Um, but I think the spirit of what, we'll, what we will do will fulfill the spirit in which they gave their recommendations. So this is, we wrote, Tim and Carrie wrote, wrote what I'm about to share um, as we were reflecting on the, the, na- the state and nature of how church is going. And if this is boring to you, go ahead and feel free to just kind of pray for us uh, because that will be very useful. Um, yeah. We feel Gateway has some wonderful strengths. We have a heart for worship, a strong prayer ministry, uh, good preaching and teaching. There's a little pat on my own back there. Uh, DTS has been fantastic. If you, anyone who's gone through DTS has come away saying, my relationship with Jesus is far closer than it's ever been. Um, and actually, this next fall, I can point this out. The fall class is going to be on spiritual fruit, and then the spring class is going to be on spiritual gifts, uh, 
One, one time I realized there were nine spiritual fruits in Galatians 5, and there were nine spiritual gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Think about that, nine and nine. And I was like, oh my word, it's like the two wings of the Christian life. Without the fruit, we can't fly. Without the gifts, we don't fly. You know, as I've heard kind of my whole Christian life, I've heard people poo-poo the gifts or only emphasize the gifts and talk about the fruit. Kind of, you know what I mean? Like church does almost feel imbalanced. All we care about is fruit. And then churches where they really don't talk about the fruit because it's so obsessed with miracles and gifts and prophecies. And I'm going... Uh, but what if, what if we had both? What if we had the character of Jesus and the power of Jesus married? Wouldn't that be exciting? That would be, we'd have the whole, the whole Jesus. What a, what a crazy idea. So that's what we're going to do here this next year in DTS on Thursday nights. We feel the congregation has a high spiritual IQ. Um, our weekend conferences have been great. I feel we've been... <coughs> fairly good at developing your individual gifts and callings, though we always want to do more. But we also have weaknesses here. I think we've had an ineffective leadership structure with elder and council, never really firing on all cylinders together, even before I came. Um, We feel we have borne far too patiently with sins in the congregation, like grumbling, complaining, disrespect. And by not dealing with it at the individual level, it ended up growing to full fruit and spreading to other people and uh, having a lot more negative consequence than it should have if we had dealt with it bravely and quickly. And offenses have crippled our capacity to honor each other well and receive from Jesus through each other. Have you ever noticed this in in Jesus' hometown? He was the same. He was exactly the same in his hometown as he was in the town where there were tons of miracles. But what was different was unbelief due to what? Their unbelief toward what he carried in the spirit realm was related to their offense at who they thought he was in the natural realm. And Jesus said, only in his hometown is a prophet without honor. But if there's not, an, if there's not honor toward the prophet, then you can't receive a prophetic word through the prophet. It is almost impossible to maintain a move of the Holy Spirit if we turn our love off toward each other. It is extremely easy to have a move of the Spirit in a weekend conference or a parachurch event where you gather a bunch of people who hardly know each other into a room for a few days to gather around Jesus because they don't know each other well enough to love each other less. But in a local church, you know each other well enough that the gospel has to have enough fruit and character to maintain a move of the Spirit. So the emphasis in a local church almost has to be equally as much, like I just said a little bit ago, on fruit as on gifts. Whereas in a weekend conference, you can talk about love till you're blue in the face and everyone's going to amen, 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 because it doesn't cost them much to love strangers whom they don't know. Right? I mean, we all know this from growing up. Who do you fight most in your life? It's not the crazy driver on the road. Right? We, that's, a, that's just a brief momentary thing. The, the person you fight the most is the one you're closest to, the people you're closest to. And, I, I, you know, when we got married, my dad's sermon, because Carrie was a runner in high school, set a bunch of records, and they 
I think your records are all shot now, aren't they? Or you still hold any? But it took a lot of years for them to beat your records. Yeah, she's a distance runner. Even though she hardly has any legs, she's real short and everything. I'm just playing with her. Uh, I'm still hard on her. I'm like, I'm out there running, jogging. I should say jogging. And she, and, and she just like always at home, knew, like never exercises or anything. But then the, she can go out there one day and just smoke me. And I don't understand it. I don't know what it is that's, that I think it's runners develop this thing toward pain. That's like step one of the runner is not actually be physically fit, but know how to suffer. <laughs> they contract for high levels of suffering. But what dad said at our wedding was marriage is not a sprint. Marriage is a distance run. And that marriage is not about me and my feelings and my happiness. But marriage is about holiness. I am face to face with another person. And if I'm selfish and you're selfish, this doesn't work. The only way this works is if I die to myself and serve you and you die to yourself and serve me. If you forgive me and I repent and I forgive you and you repent. If that happens, if marriage becomes a matrix for holiness, you can have love and honor in a relationship. You can have the spirit of God flow in a relationship to the extent that the gospel's taking on fruit. You can have the spirit move in power. And it's the same in, in, this, in these relationships. And the thing is, it's strongest where the relationships are deepest. You can say, well, I'm just going to leave local church behind and do the parachurch thing and do, the, do that fun stuff. But the closer the relationship, the more opportunity for the gospel to be put on genuine display. The harder it is to put it on display, but the more important it is and the more powerful it is when it's put on display. Okay, I'm off on, I'm talking too long on that point, but those are, those are some weak areas for us. Um, next page. We think sometimes we've prematurely appointed people to leadership positions who were gifted without first letting them be tested and then approved. Uh, we think at times over the past 10 to 12 years, we've been divided over what the core mission of Gateway is. I think uh, specifically one thing, and this isn't right or wrong, it's just the truth. Uh, a few years back, I think we kind of realized that a lot of, there, there were people whose sense of the core mission of this church is to have our faces pointed toward the other Mennonite churches. And our, and our energy and our time and our efforts are, are put toward things that build Mennonite churches being friends with Mennonite churches. And uh, if you know me, you know that's not my priority at all. I like those churches and I respect those churches, but that's not our mission. Our mission is to be a vibrant church for pre and unchurched or de-churched people. So that's where I want our energy and focus to go. And I think that that has caused stress and conflict. People could feel that, that, that we were faced a different, dire- different direction. And people in the church who wanted that could feel that I was faced more outward than inward. Uh, I don't believe that we've had a formally designed discipleship process to take people from I want to know God to I know God and I've been baptized to I understand the purpose of a church and I'm committed to it to I understand that I have gifts and I'm putting them into, into practice and even I want to grow and be mentored by, by really mature people. You see that progression? And if you, again, I, I said earlier, It's one thing to do work in your life. It's another thing to work on your life so that it's set up to achieve your goals. 
I think we have been weak in the area of being organized around taking people deeper in commitment to Jesus and deeper in commitment to the church. In fact, in this day and age, I think we know this, the idea of being committed to a local church is almost unpopular. In Sussex County, I have encountered over and over people who don't believe church membership is even biblical. Have you encountered that? I've encountered that actually a lot. Oh, church membership isn't even biblical, Tim. And I'm going, fascinating. That's fascinating. So, uh, yeah, we've prematurely appointed people. We've been divided over our core mission. Uh, we've not effectively designed a formal discipleship process to take people deeper. We have often not pruned ministries that were not fruitful. And when you try to do everything we've historically always done and then add new ideas too, that's a limited amount of sap going through the vine. And now you've got all these branches pulling on the limited amount of sap. You only have a certain amount. You are the church. And your sap is how much time and energy and attention you have. And if, if you only have a limited amount of time and energy and attention, and we have to keep Sunday school and small groups and kids Sunday schools and kids church and VBS and every other new and, and prayer meeting every Wednesday and Sunday night church and then clothing closet. Like if you add everything we've ever done and we never shut anything down because its season is over, then you end up with a group of people who are either at church five nights a week, five days a week, or you end up with certain ministries that people are doing that they're no longer energized by doing them, they're exhausted by doing them. And I kind of have this idea that you shouldn't be at church more than like two days a week. Because how can you fulfill your mission in the world and your calling in the world if we ask you to make this community your only thing in life? That, to me, is a violation of the purpose of church. There's an age-old question that says, does God's church have a mission or does God's mission have a church? And I think it would be helpful for us to think that God's mission has a church. And if God's mission has a church, then churchianity is a bad plan. It's 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 a vine that has too many branches and there's too many branches to be able to produce many grapes. And we have failed to prune. So, um, and then here's a, my final one of the negative points is when we're exhausted, we steer clear of hard things. How many of you, when you're exhausted and you're going through a hard time, steer clear of difficult conversations? I, I doubt you're, who's energized and, and, and excited about conflict? I'm not. No hands went up. I, years ago, I said, Holy, I said, Lord, I hate conflict. And he said, we don't. I was like, oh, no, here we go. When the Holy Spirit disagrees with you, you already know you're wrong. <laughs> I hate conflict, Lord. We don't, he says. I said, why? And he says, because that's where all the transformation happens. And I'm like, oh boy. But when we're exhausted, fatigued, heartbroken, we run away from more of that. And that's one of the first things we do is we stop having the important, hard conversations that need to happen to make progress. And I believe we've done that, as Garth pointed out in one of those recent emails that he sent. 
So there's some strengths and there's some weaknesses. And so I would ask the question, how can we get unstuck? If that's what makes us stuck, how can we get unstuck? First one is a leadership restructure where there's a clear hierarchy of authority. It's not a popular word in our culture. Our culture doesn't like authority, but God throughout the whole Bible has established authority. And if we line up under that authority, then we line up under him and we can thrive. And it's every, it goes, it's from government to family to church. He creates a structure of authority because without that, you have chaos. And you end up, instead of getting something done, you end up spending all your time arguing over who gets to decide what gets done. So I believe that um, restructuring our church is essential at the leadership level to bring the two teams into alignment and unity, and in close relationship. That's the first one. I also feel like the captain's gathering that we had one of before quarantine made us shut down, uh, those meetings are going to be really fun and calm and happy. We just go around the room. Each person shares for three minutes and prayer requests. What's going on in your area of ministry? I put it on the whiteboard. And then we pray at the end. We high five and we go home, having been informed about what everyone else is doing for Jesus in our little church, which to me is good times. Sherry had to leave early, so she made sure that she called so she could hear every detail and not miss a thing because it was such holy ground. So I think that's going to be helpful. The leadership restructure. How are we going to get unstuck? Number one, leadership restructure. Number two, Clarifying our mission and pruning around our mission. I personally have, a, 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 I have like a mission statement for my life. We have an identity statement for our church, which is so long that I doubt you know it because I don't even remember it. I remember the first part, which is we are a family, what? Gathered around Jesus. But do you remember all the other statements, the other five? I don't. They're really good, though. But what good are they if you don't remember them? There's an old adage that I love that says, for something to be applied, it must be remembered, and for it to be remembered, it must be repeated. And I would add this one. For something to be applied, it must be remembered, and if it's to be remembered, it should be simple. (laughs) And repeated. So here's my personal life mission. I, I want to bring people into meaningful encounters with Jesus. That's what I live for. Every day when I get up, I feel like I've done well if I've encountered Jesus and I've given some Jesus encounter away. And I don't honestly care a whole lot what means I use to to achieve that. I just care that that happens. If at the end of my life, people have encountered Jesus because I was here on planet Earth, I will say, that's what I, that's what, that it worked. We did it. I would love for Gateway to adopt something that simple and, and maybe similar to that that says Gateway exists to bring people into meaningful encounters with Jesus and then use that to prune everything by. Is this ministry right now, is this small group ministry, is this prayer meeting, is this special weekend that we're doing, does this bring people into meaningful encounters with Jesus or, is it just, or is it just, are we just doing it because people, we've always done it and people expect it to be done? And then if, as we're doing it, are we doing it in such a way that it's most effectively bringing people into encounters with Jesus? Or are we doing it the way we've always done it because it's easier? And even little things like meetings. I have, I, I, I've, 
I've gone to a lot of meetings, <laughs> like a lot more meetings than I want to. And I think meetings actually are important. A few years ago, I was looking in my Bible with that mindset, and it's like, okay, there are a lot of meetings in the Bible, too. Like, the whole Old Testament is arranged around, like God says, let's have a lot of meetings on purpose because that's a, creating an environment for people to have meaningful encounters with God. But meetings for meetings' sake, bad idea. Just filling up your schedule with stuff that doesn't need to happen. I love Jen Dorman at council meeting. I think eight, eight meetings in a row, Doug can confirm this, we talked about the printer for like eight council meetings. In, yes, Nancy, no, she's nodding. Jen Dorman said to me, if we talk about the printer again, I'm going to pop or something like that. I'm going to scream. I'm gonna, she said something. And I said, I think Doug can decide what to do with the printer. I think, I think he can handle that. Why are we still talking about it? And when our meetings don't closely connect with, that, with, with a central mission, like we're here to bring people into meaningful encounters with Jesus, that's the purpose of all meetings. We're going to plot and we're going to plan and we're going to strategize how we can better. We're going to plot, plan, plan, strategize, listen to God, tell each other what we've been hearing God say about how we can better bring people into meaningful encounters with Jesus. I'm still on that point. Let's keep moving. So clarifying the mission and increasing pruning and alignment. Leadership restructure, clarify the mission, increase alignment. Number three, we do need a coherent discipleship strategy. Right now, we have DTS. What right now? I should say it this way. We have Sunday morning, Wednesday night prayer meeting, and I just started doing whiteboard sessions, which is me more informed. Like this is with a microphone and a little bit larger group. You can't interrupt and ask questions quite as freely. But with a little whiteboard, you put stuff on the board, you interact more. It's teaching instead of preaching. I'm not sure exactly what all the differences are between teaching and preaching, but I know it when I feel it. <laughs> but that's some of the stuff we do. We also have small groups, but one thing I would say is we used to have Sunday school as a dominant strategy for making disciples here. And since that has gone away, we really haven't replaced it. And I would love if eventually Wednesday night replaced Sunday school. I would love if eventually when parents bring kids for youth, they stay for classes. And I would love if there were even things for the little kids to encounter Jesus on Wednesday nights. I would love that. But we need a strategy. Um, I'm very excited about Rusty and Linda's small group vision. Their vision is more for short-term small groups that are gathered around specific content and going on a journey together for maybe six to ten weeks and then breaking, breaking up the group and taking a break for ten weeks or so. Kind of the classical model we've followed here is you find a small group and you're in it for like years and years until it slowly fizzles out. And it, it seems to me that a shorter-term strategy like Rusty and Linda have proposed where the groups gather, yes, there's food, yes, there's prayer, but there's content. You come together with a purpose to grow in a specific thing for a specific time. I personally am not going to commit to a long-term small group that's goal is just to hang out and be friends. I'm not going to do that because I am already in like three of those groups by virtue of my role here. Uh, but that kind of group is exciting to me. The fourth piece, so that would be the third, was a single discipleship strategy to take people deeper. And the fourth thing would be gatekeeping. Uh, Penn Clark talks about gatekeeping as 
you, when, you have to have gatekeeping in your family, right? Here's your, here's your family culture. And if somebody comes into your family and starts behaving in a way that violates the core values of your family, you, you correct the, the behavior. And if they don't repent, you actually remove that person from that environment so that it does not damage the family. That's gatekeeping. And he talks about that being imperative in churches as well. And that churches that don't gatekeep, which is guard the doctrine, the beliefs, and the culture of the, of the congregation, he would almost view it as like a church with no shepherds to not have gatekeeping. And it was fascinating to me, this most recently I was reading through First uh, Chronicles, gatekeepers were full-time, 24-7 on duty in the tabernacle. They had people guarding all four walls of the tabernacle, armed men that were there to protect the sacred things from being stolen or pillaged or damaged in any way. And I thought, oh my word, God does take gatekeeping of sacred things really seriously. And what could be more precious to God than his children? So whatever this gatekeeping, you know, whenever there's an Old Testament uh, shadow, there's a new covenant reality. You tracking? So I just, I thought, man, there's really something powerful here. Um, Yeah, gatekeeping. How do we protect the culture of gateway from the things that are destructive to the flock? And this is essentially what we ended up calling the intervention team in to address, is what are the things that have broken down the culture that we need to do a much better job gatekeeping against? And I've kind of already alluded to it in in the in the weak spots, but yeah, we need to have more difficult conversations more quickly with, with more courage. And uh, I'm actually pursuing leadership development. I have weekly conversations with Steve, my overseer, but I also have weekly conversations with Adam Bauer, who around the first of the year, he said, I'm, le- I'm doing leadership coaching. Does that interest you? And I was like, not at all. Uh, and then, you know how, I, you know the parable of the two sons, the one father says to both kids, I need you to go do this. And then the one son's like, I'll never do it. You're stupid. Don't tell me my business. And then he walks off in a huff. And then the other son's like, I'll do it right away, father. But then the one who says he's going to do it just doesn't. And the one who went and walked off in a huff ends up feeling bad coming back and doing it. I'm kind of that one that says, I'm not going to do it. And then I come back and go, now I guess I have to do it because uh, my conscience said so. And I have to obey my conscience. And so I came back to Adam a few months after. He said, do you want, can I do leadership coaching? I was like, don't talk to me about leadership coaching. And I came back and said, uh, can you do leadership coaching for me? And he's like, yeah, buddy. And called me up like that day. And he pushes me hard. Like he's salty. He's a spicy uh, bowl of nachos. And we're also, I'm also seeking mentorship from Mark Yoder, pastor at Greenwood. So I think I almost have an overabundance of mentors in my, in my life by the time this year is over. But the main thing that I look at in terms of gatekeeping for, for our church is actually leadership. I'm, if, if I'm boring you, I'm almost done with this part and we're moving to the more exciting parts. But the, the main thing that I'm looking at is leadership. If a leadership team is, is close friends, it's like parents, right? My cousin Jeremy had these parents. They were always complaining about their kids. Their kids were naughty. Their kids were disruptive. They were bad kids. What's wrong with my kids? Can you fix my kids? We need to go to get counseling for these kids. And they came to Jeremy, and he ignored the kids and sent the parents on a week-long inner healing retreat in Colorado. 
They did daily conversation and, and prayer with a, with, a, with a counselor. And um, when they came back, boy, they had repented of stuff. They had seen stuff. They had unpacked pain. They had dealt with unmet expectations. They had made themselves vulnerable. They had understood each other's feelings and committed to take better care of each other's hearts. The craziest thing, they came to Jeremy and says, I don't know what happened, but our children have changed. We didn't even focus on, these, just, these are good kids. Well, the kids changed when the parents changed. And what I'm trying to say is, I feel like as we, as a leadership of Gateway, get healthier as a team, it's going to affect the entire culture of the congregation without it being a lot of, um, honestly, effort. You get healthy and the people around you suddenly uh, seem different. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that. So moving to conclusions here, how well we get along is more important to me than how much we accomplish together. Maybe I say that again because that's quotable. How well we get along is more important to me than how much we get done. You, you can dis, feel free to disagree with that. I worked for a dude who disagreed with that. And uh, when I started to work for him, he was a, he was a stonemason, bricklayer, a fantastically gifted man. When I started to work for him, his wife said, now you got to know something. Let's say, is, let's, I'm going to change his name. Names have been changed to protect the guilty. Uh, let's say his name was Joe Bob, okay? His wife came to me and said, you're going to have to know something here, Tim. Joe Bob is one way at church, and Joe Bob is a totally different way at work. Church Joe Bob's a nice guy. Work Joe Bob is not a nice guy, and he was not a nice guy. When I was in his way, he would physically pick me up and move me out of the way rather than ask me to get out of the way. That was weird. An adult man moving another adult man like an item. There was more. It came to near blows at times. I did quit one day and said, take me home, I'm done. I will not be spoken to this ma- in this manner. You ain't going to just cuss at me up and down and talk to me that way. I'm a human and I'm putting up with it. Well... Oh, shoot, i got to tell you this real story, this story real quick. That same, <laughs> we were doing this, this bricklaying job, tearing down this old brick that was damaged so we could replace it with new. And we're using the grout cutters and all the <clears throat> fun stuff, and there's dust flying. I love that, man. I love I loved the dirty hard work. That was fun. But a, a, a storm, a thunderstorm came up real quick in the middle of the day, and he says, oh, no, we got to cover up all the work with tarps. So we're out there quick covering up all the work with tarps. And... Then it starts to lightning real close to where we were. And then it starts to rain like crazy where we were. And he's up trying to get some stuff covered up. And he's got his hand on a downspout. And lightning hits. And I see a blue flame kind of an electrical thing go through the downspout and through his hand. And he screams, ah! And then he cussed and said some stuff. But I was like, oh my goodness, is he going to die? So he's like, I just got struck by lightning. And I'm like, I saw it with my own two eyes, bro. So then he's like, you go back in the garage and be safe. I had to finish this. And he finished it. That's who he was. I forget why I was even talking about him. Oh, yeah, because he was two different ways. 
One way at church, one way at work. That's not okay. That is not okay. His attitude was, we're going to get a lot done, and I don't care how I treat you to do it. And I thought, that's not how, like, it would be better for us to slow down and love one another and get a little less done. So here's nine leadership agreements that we're going to have everyone in leadership, elders and deacons and others, sign their name to and date so that we can do a much better job of gatekeeping here at, gate, at Gateway. The irony of our name being Gateway, and I'm saying our weakest thing has been gatekeeping. But you know how this works, right? Sometimes the area in your life you're weakest at, when you submit to the grace of God, can become the area where later you're actually the strongest at. You've ever seen that? It was harder for you to get it, so you actually got that lesson at a deeper level. So nine leadership agreements. Number one, biblically, leaders must be people of character, exhibiting fruits of the Spirit in their daily lives and relationships. Number two, leaders will commit to close relationship with leaders, the leadership team, the senior pastor, consisting of regular check-ins and conversations. And if close relationship is not something that you are going to be willing or able to invest in, Please do not serve in leadership. Number three, there is an expressed lack of offense with any fellow leaders or the senior leader. And if there is, you deal with it immediately. Number four, a willingness to submit to the senior leader and to the leadership team operating ex officio. Number five, an expressed willingness to follow Matthew 18, 15 and following which says, go to the person who's offended you directly. Don't go talk to a bunch of people about them, but go to the person and resolve the issue. If it doesn't work, take another, go directly to them again. And if it doesn't work then, then go to the church. So expressed willingness, number five, to follow Matthew 18 if offense arises. Number six, expressed willingness to not participate in triangles. Do you guys know what triangles are? Yeah. Triangles are like the major f- source of destruction in communities. Like say I'm mad at Linda and then I go and I talk to Evelina about, about that. And then maybe even Evelina tries to go talk to Linda on my behalf to fix me or get me to f- do the thing. That's a triangle. Anytime you have a triangle in a relationship, it's going to destroy the relationships. I've tried to be the mediator between people and screwed it up worse. Well, that you, you're, you're misunderstanding their heart and their motives. Oh, he's talking to, to you about me? You guys been talking about me behind my back? No, it's not like that. Nothing bad was said. He was trying to figure out a way to get to the the good stuff. Even there, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So an expressed willingness to not participate in triangles and a commitment that if a triangle occurs, you give the person two days to go themselves to the person or you tell on them. Isn't that fun? Okay, now that you've said that you have hard feelings against Linda, you have till Friday. I'm going to check in with her on Friday to see if you called her. If you hadn't, I'm spilling the beans and telling them your secret. The end. Boy, that'll put an end to your little triangle party right quick, wouldn't it? And what that will do is require us to be direct and healthy in relationships. Uh, Number seven, anonymous criticism is never permitted. Say their name or say nothing. Anonymous criticism is a sneaky manipulation tactic. We say it's to protect the unnamed person, but it actually creates suspicion and fear and distrust in the fabric of the culture. Almost done. Leaders are expected to prioritize gateway events, conferences, prayer meetings, etc. in order that leaders can stay connected to the core spiritual pulse of the church. Number nine, last one. 
Leaders may be asked to attend a yearly refresher course where we go over the bait of Satan, dynamics of healthy relationships, common demonic strategies, or other helpful content to keep us all alert and prayerful. I want to say something real quick about common demonic strategies. The most common demonic strategy against you is to get you offended at the people around you, to view their motives with distrust, and to get you to take up offense issuing in hurt, either for yourself or others, that you then hold on to. Another way of saying offense is hurt. When you are hurt, either for yourself or others, and you stay hurt, and stay hurt with that person who hurt them or you, that is offense. And it is the most common demonic strategy. When you find somebody who's, who's stuck in life and they're resentful and self-pitying and the story they're telling themselves about their life is all that's been done against them, how they could never win, how they've been mistreated, how they've been wronged at work, how they've been wronged in the family, how they've been wronged in the relationship, how they've been wronged in the friendship groups, how they've been wronged at church, how they've been wronged. And then those wrongs create sense, a sense of who wronged them and the blame shifting starts to happen. And now this person or this group, and it runs deep, guys. And, and then we generalize our pain, our, our, like the demonic strategy, it's like our pain, oh, it's all women or it's all men or it's all white people or it's all black people or it's all cops or it's all Americans or it's all this group or it's all Christians or it's all whatever. These then, these then become trigger points where the, the evil one can now play you like a fiddle, play me like a fiddle. Exactly, the bait of Satan. And one easy thing, that I, one thing that I've noticed is, is common de- demonic strategy is if, if, if you get offended at your authority then instantly we sow division and disunity into the, into the group, even if it's just your parents' authority. So if there's one kid offended at mom and dad, that one kid can make chaos happen in the family culture. And, and the parents have a certain limited amount of ability to, to address that. Even the Holy Spirit has a certain limited amount of ability to address that. Because you have been given freedom over your heart. So those, those demonic strategies, we've seen them in, in, in Gateway, where there's, an, where there's a, Brian Hibbs called it a boss battle demon. As we were in prayer for some dynamics we saw happening as a cycle over and over, Brian Hibbs said he saw like a boss battle demon. Like if you're in a video game, you have the little bad guys that populate all the levels, but then you get to the end of the level, and then there's a boss battle. And the boss is stronger and more powerful and has more defensive things and you have to have a better strategy to beat it. Brian Hibbs said that Gateway wasn't, this is years ago now, Gateway has an ongoing cycle of coming into contact with a specific boss, a sort of demon boss. And people might leave, but new people then take up that same flag that gets left that the demonic still hangs out just waiting for the opportunity just whispering in people's ears to please take up this flag and carry with it so it's the same agenda, the same dynamics, but different faces and names. Paul says we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. I could have done better. We could have done better. You know, I'm not of the fan of the whole, like, well, it was impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. You know, with meekness, humility, and obedience, we should, we should be able to win. 
right? Submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee. And we have, we have to break the cycle. And the way we break the cycle is stop taking up that, that rallying flag that gets left when, when people leave. And by the way, I'm not suggesting everybody who leaves has taken up demonic offense. Not at all. There are plenty of people who leave here who leave well, okay? But I'm talking about where love gets turned off, resentment gets turned on, and the, the same dynamics of dishonor and distance happen before the leaving. So we believe that a change in these four areas, leadership restructure, clarified mission, increasing pruning and alignment, a coherent discipleship strategy, and gatekeeping. We believe that a change in these four areas can lead to a season of peace and health and sustained growth. I I think Tim is right, and one thing I don't like either um, greatly is confrontation. And... And the Lord's been speaking to me about that, um, especially when you take authority and the right Holy Spirit authority instead of our own fleshly um, authority sometimes. I think what happens is it don't work out well when you just keep pushing it aside and hoping it goes away because it don't go away. It just keeps getting worse. But one of the things that God's been talking to me about um, so many times here lately in the last uh, probably about two or three months, he's he's really been impressing on my mind that um, all it takes is for evil to thrive is for good men to stand by and do, and do nothing. And I know that's been me lately. Um, well, early on in the um, elder stuff, but um, this year is going to be different, and I'm excited about it because I know that um, God has good things for us, and if we do it right by the Holy Spirit, um, the things will turn out right. So I just want to encourage you guys to uh, keep coming back, and I don't want you to get discouraged and maybe some of the things that the devil might be putting in your mind or some of the things that you think. So it is important that we um, pay attention to what the Holy Spirit says to us. And... Um, I, I just appreciate and love each one of you guys, and it's uh, going to be a great church, and it's going to thrive. I can see it coming, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for another another great day today. Lord, I bless everyone that's here, that came here today, and that the ones that aren't here, Lord, I bless them too. I pray that you will be with them and some of the uncertain times in our world today that we, we're going through. Um, And it's what we're going through. It's not that we're stopping. Um, I just pray that you will continue to be with us. Um, Thank you for your word that we can um, be able to uh, listen to what you have to say and to be able to read the things in your word that's encouraging that there's over 7,000 promises in the Bible and you always uh, come through. So we thank you for being on our side. And we thank you for all that you do for us. And I pray that each one of us here will um, have a softened heart, that we will, um, Lord, that we will love each other and be led by the Spirit. And if we have anything against each other or our brother, that we will take care of that because that is the bait of Satan. And that's called offense. And when we take up offense, things don't work right. So it needs to be talked out or talked about because sometimes we hear things that isn't really quite right, that didn't, wasn't even really meant that way. I know I have that with my marriage with Linda sometimes, and she's like, that's what you heard? And 
sometimes that I don't hear quite right. And I think the devil kind of changes things or we to cause offense because that's his main objective to uh, cause uh, chaos. It's kill, steal, and destroy. John 10.10 says that real clear. Lord, I pray that you will help us have a great week this week um, and that we will come back together Wednesday and uh, be able to learn and be able to be taught um, by your word. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.